Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. My name is Brandon. I am one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. It is great to see you today. Uh, We're in the middle of a series through the book of Galatians, Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to spend some time there. We're going to pick up uh, right where Mike, Pastor Mike, left off last week uh, and jump into Galatians chapter 5. You guys look good this morning. You doing all right? Feeling good? All right, good, 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 good. Well, man, let's let's pray together, Uh, and would you just pray this with me? Father, by your Spirit... Would you illuminate or make known your word to us today? Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to jump in. Galatians chapter 5. We're just going to read a little bit of what Mike covered last week, verse uh, 13. It's what Paul says to the church in Galatia. He says this, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So let's start. Verse 13, this is what Mike covered some of last week, but I think it's important to set the context of what we're going to talk about this week. It says this phrase in verse 13, you are called to freedom. In other words, he's saying this, God called you or God set you apart as a follower of Jesus in order to be free. And in particular, what sort of freedom has he been talking about all the way through the book of Galatians? The freedom from self-justification. Do you remember that? That we no longer have to prove ourselves as being worthy to God by our obedience to the law, but instead we've been brought into the very family of God, not because of our obedience, but because of the work of Jesus, because what Jesus has done. This even, as we saw a few weeks ago, included the Galatians who are coming from a pagan background, right? And so Paul talks about this thing called elementary principles. He's saying the same thing, that self-justification could also look like trying to appease little g-gods by sacrifices or rituals. And we even added this, self-justification could just be as simple as proving that we have the right to belong to any social group or community. He's saying you have a freedom now from that, and don't use that freedom to please yourself. We're going to talk about this idea of the flesh in just a second, but instead what he says is use that freedom to love, to serve each other. In other words, you get, you get the idea here? Stop doing what got you in this position of bondage in the first place. That's what Mike talked about last week. Your own pride, inward focus, and love of self is what got you into this sort of trouble. So stop doing that. And instead, seize upon this freedom that you have 
in order to love other people. So the way this works is when our hope is set on self-justification, it's really hard to love and serve other people well, isn't it? When we're constantly thinking about how we measure up, how we stack up, and if we have to prove ourselves to God and to others, it's really hard to love other people well. An example would be um, the Braves this season passed out those replica championship rings. You guys remember that? And even though every game they're giving out 40,000 rings, right? And how many people can fit in the truest part? About 40,000 people. Almost everyone is getting a ring. Still, we went one night uh, with my in-laws and the line was backed up. Why? Because you're in a competition for what seems to be a limited resource. But the gospel says you're no longer in competition for what seems to be a limited resource. Does that make sense? You have all the grace and all the approval from God that you could ever need. It's not in short supply. So now you're free to love your neighbor because your neighbor's not your competition anymore. You're not trying to get over the top of them so that God will notice you. And this fits in all of those areas. So the legalist can't truly love his neighbor. It's always limited in scope because the legalist is always trying to get God's eyes on him or her. The do-gooder is always trying to prove themselves as good so they're always the object of themselves. But so is the pagan or the person trying to live a free life pursuing the things of the world like Mike talked about. It's still all eyes on me. It's still self-focused. So catch us up to where we're going to start. You're like, oh gosh, this is going to be a long one. When you're free from constantly having to prove yourself, Paul's saying, use it. Use it as an opportunity to do what you have not been able to do, which is truly love your neighbor. And in that context, something strikes me as really strange. Paul has spent four and a half chapters railing against false teachers who were demanding that the Galatians obey every dot and tittle of the law. You remember that, right, in our journey? He is saying, you don't have to be circumcised to follow Jesus. You don't have to obey the rituals to follow Jesus. And then, did you notice what he does? This guy quotes from the book of Leviticus. Where are the instructions about circumcision? In Leviticus, have you ever tried to read Leviticus? Some of you started on your Bible reading plan. You're going to read through the Bible in a year. And uh, Genesis, you were like, this starts good. Then it gets very depressing. And then you get to Leviticus, you're like, I don't even know what's going on. You know what I mean? Like Exodus was fun. Genesis was interesting. What the heck is happening in Leviticus? Because it's full of all of these crazy laws that we don't understand. Details about the sacrificial system, laws about wearing mixed fabrics and eating shellfish and getting tattoos and a young goat can't be boiled in the milk of his mother. You're like, what is going on here? And here's what Paul does. After four and a half chapters talking about their relationship with the law, then he gives them the law. Says you should love each other and serve one another. Why? Because 
Leviticus says, love your neighbor as yourself. I think this could lead to two responses from the Galatians and from us. The first one is confusion. Isn't this weird? It could lead to confusion for us about our relationship to the law. You can hear the Galatians reading this letter out loud. They get to this point in one of their churches and somebody goes, wait, 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 wait. Are you saying that our freedom from the law should be used as an opportunity to obey the law? What sort of sense does that make? You could almost hear them exclaiming together, well, you've been railing against the law. Now you're giving us a law. Even more, you're saying I should use this freedom to obey the law. And then maybe they park on this question that so many of us have as well. What is the difference between obeying the law to love my neighbor and obeying the law of circumcision? It comes from the same book of the Bible. What's the difference? Our confusion and their confusion would really be around this question. How do we know which laws still apply to us? What are we supposed to obey and what are we not supposed to obey and why? Now, for hundreds and hundreds of years since the Protestant Reformation, there has been a teaching about the laws that actually is fairly simple to understand, but we just don't talk about very often. So what the Reformers taught, and even people before them, is that there are three kinds of laws contained in the Old Testament. The first one is the ceremonial law. So the ceremonial law will be laws given to Israel to govern their worship of God. This would pertain to their ceremonies, circumcision, sacrificial system. And the purpose of the ceremonial law is to point forward to something else. We see that clearly in the New Testament, right? That the sacrificial system was given for a time to teach us about the gravity of sin and our need for a savior. It's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, come on, come on, guys. We knew this whole time the sacrifice or the blood of goats didn't actually take away people's sins, right? He says, we knew this was pointing to a greater reality of something that God was going to do. And like circumcision, Many of these laws just defined what it believed or shaped the worship of Israel, these people of God. And so what we would say, after Jesus comes, those laws are no longer necessary because we now have the reality that those ceremonial laws pointed forward to. So there's a ceremonial law. The second law is the civil law. Now, remember, very different from our country, where our government is separated from religious practice, or should be. The Israelites had a government, a nation in and of themselves, that was ultimately, when they were first formed, who was their king? God was their king. And so some of the laws that we find in the Old Testament are civil laws. In other words, they're laws given to Israel in order to govern them as a nation while they exist. Those two are laws given for a particular time and place. And they simply don't apply to us. We no longer are living in that nation under that style of government. 
we are, as we've been talking about through the book of Galatians, what? A multi-ethnic family of faith that spans all sorts of cultures and governments and peoples and places. And so when we come across civil laws, those are laws given for that particular time and place, and so they don't apply to us. But thirdly, there's the moral law. Now, what we find in the Old Testament and the New Testament is God's law that he requires for all people in all places. The moral law tells us how God designed people to live. You remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, people were created in what? God's image, to bear his image. And so in the scripture, there's this thing called the moral law, which is simply God's description to his people of what it looks like to be image bearers. And so people who are reflecting, representing the very glory of God, love their neighbor. So what we find in the Ten Commandments, people who are reflecting as image bearers, the very glory of God, do not covet Does that make sense? Now, the moral law, we see and we hold to still because this is what it means to be a human. (laughs) This is what it means to be a human. This is what God designed us to do. And the way that we identify the moral law is very often by Jesus. It's the clearest way. What was Jesus like in character when he lived among us? Because remember, Jesus, the Bible says, is the true human. He's the one that lived life the way God intended for us to live. And so what we see in the character of Jesus, we then emulate. We also see the moral law from the Old Testament repeated by Jesus in his teachings. The Sermon on the Mount and other places. And so, for instance, in this text... Paul quotes from Leviticus, you should love your neighbor as yourself, but who also has quoted from Leviticus for us? Jesus. And he's taught us that we should love our neighbor. And so when we see commands from the Old Testament repeated by Jesus, we go, oh, this must be God's moral law. This must be what God has intended, the way God's intended his people to live. We also see commands from the Old Testament reaffirmed in the New Testament. So in Paul's writings, in Peter's writings, in the Gospels, we see these other teachings about God's moral law that are reaffirmed in the New Testament. Which means what? That the apostles, the followers of Jesus, saw those laws as binding or as God's moral law. Intended to instruct us in the way that we are supposed to live. So here's what this means. To clear up confusion about the role of the law is there are things that were in the Old Testament given to a particular people at a particular time, like circumcision, that because Jesus has come and we follow Jesus, we no longer have to follow. Then there are laws in the Old Testament that reflect the moral character of God himself and what he requires for his people, those are reaffirmed in the New Testament by the apostles and by Jesus, and so we follow those laws. That's what it means to be a New Testament people. Now remember, Paul's bigger point in our relationship with the law 
isn't that the law is not good. It's that it's insufficient. That our own obedience to the law cannot save us. That the way that we uh, have a right relationship with God is through Jesus. So we talked about for weeks, justification by faith in Christ and Christ alone, alone, not our own obedience to the law. And so once we've trusted Christ, we've been adopted and brought into God's family. And then we start to learn that God's moral law. And we go, this is what it means to be the people of God. This is how the family lives. So hopefully to clear up any sort of confusion, that's the way we relate to the law. But there's a problem. There's a huge problem. The huge problem is uh, we still haven't solved the major issue, which really isn't knowing which laws we should or should not obey or take seriously. The major issue is we're incapable of obeying any of them in the first place. It doesn't matter which ones you pick and choose. We all fall short of all of them. The law tells me what God requires, tells me how my life can increasingly look like Jesus' life, tells me how to be an image bearer. But even though we who have been saved by Christ have experienced the very love of God, we still find it hard to love our neighbors. Even though we've been justified by Christ and put in a right relationship with God, even though we've been adopted as sons and daughters, even though we are heirs, God's going to make good on every promise he's given to us, even though we are filled by the Spirit, God dwelling in us, all this is the past couple weeks of Galatians, right? Even though all of these things are true, it is still exceedingly hard to love our neighbors. It is hard for me to love my actual neighbors, It's hard for me to love genuinely my neighbor who keeps his yard meticulous and has won the neighborhood yard of the month because I find jealousy welling up inside of my heart. It is equally hard for me to love my neighbor who gives zero attention to his yard and allows whoever to come and go at all times of the night. It's difficult. And so my very good neighbor is hard to love because of jealousy. And my not-so-great neighbor is hard to love because I'm annoyed. And then we just keep moving out from there. And this is why Paul says at the very end of those couple of verses, if you keep on biting and devouring one another instead of loving each other, you're going to consume yourselves. That is the pull. So the second possible response to what Paul's teaching is not just confusion about the law, but the second possible response is it could lead us to despair over our inability to keep the law. Paul identifies, starting in verse 16, a conflict inside of us. That there is still a pull to gratify what he calls the desires of the flesh. It's not an external conflict like Braves versus Mets or the Avengers versus Thanos. It's not a conflict like the conflict I experience inside of myself every time I drive past a Dairy Queen. Am I gonna get a peanut butter cup blizzard or am I gonna do what's right? 
And then I experience the other pull, which is how do I hide this from my wife, right? <laughs> the inward conflict he describes, starting in verse 16, is the inward conflict between our sin nature and God's spirit. He says there's an old remnant of who we used to be before we came to know Christ that remains inside of us. And we still experience the pull of it. We still experience this wanting of all eyes to be on us, to love ourselves before others and before God. And this conflict could give us over to despair. Will I ever be completely free, free from this sin? Will I ever be able to live without experiencing this particular temptation? Will I ever be truly free enough to, to love my neighbor? Could I rid myself of attention-seeking pride, envy, and jealousy? And so he says, verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another. To keep you from doing what you want. But you... But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Here's what he says. There's a conflict. Spirit versus flesh. But the flesh, he doesn't mean here our physical bodies, but our sinful nature. The sin-desiring part of us. The force inside of us that wants to exalt myself over my neighbor and myself over God. That this remnant, after years and years and years of me thinking about myself first, still remains even after I've come to know Christ. Even after God's spirit, which is the other thing he talks about, has come inside of my heart, recreating me into a new creation. That even after that, there is this pull of this pattern of living inside of me. Now, he says, if you're a follower of Jesus, this pull is to get you to do what you don't want to do. That's the major change when the Spirit comes inside of you. You start to desire the things of God. That's radically different. But the thing that is the same is this pull. And so when we're tempted to give over to despair, will I ever be free with this? Really, the question we're asking is, how do I love God and neighbor instead of gratifying the desires of the flesh? Here's what Paul says in verse 16. The key is walking by the Spirit. Walk here means to make one's way or to progress. It can mean making due use of an opportunity to regulate or to conduct your life in a certain way. Here's the, here's the picture in this conflict. Here's what walking by the Spirit is. We already have it, right? Remember that from Galatians. We already know this. Spirit of God is given to every single person who's confessed faith in Christ. Spirit of God is what gave you a new heart and a new life. It's the spirit that works to bring you into the family, right? You remember all of this. So we have it. The question is, how do we walk by it? Uh, anybody remember when radios look like this? We've got a picture up here. Anybody remember this? Yeah, Chris Ebert does. Thank you, Chris, for being honest. <clears throat> So some of you younger folks may not remember when radios looked like this, but here's the way it works. You see these dials at the bottom? There's like on, off, and volume, but there's also a tune dial, right? And what you would have to do is you, uh, you see the markers up here at the top? <clears throat> Those are the radio stations, and you would have to 
rotate that dial until you found the radio station that you were looking for. But anybody who's ever used one of these remembers there's a problem. Especially if two radio stations are close to each other, it can be exceedingly difficult to dial it in perfectly to the right radio station. So you're trying to dial in your station to listen to your favorite classic rock station. You want to hear some Journey or some Boston, but right next to it is the polka station. And Gus Polanski is killing it with polka, 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 twin legs polka, kiss me polka, and the polka twists. And so you would have to sit and really kind of try to dial that in. You're trying to get the Braves game. But there's competing sounds, right? You're getting a little accordion, right? And then a little, little bit of Steve Perry's vocals. And you just pray, you just keep dialing in. It's a mixture of static and the two until you find the station. This is what walking in the Spirit is. Walking in the Spirit is the practice of continually dialing into the work of the Spirit. God's spirit is at work around you and in you. God's spirit is speaking, leading, guiding, convicting. You don't have to do any of that. Walking in the spirit is just dialing it in so that you can hear and be attuned to what God is doing. That is walking or conducting our lives according to the spirit. And the more we're listening and heeding, guess what starts to fade away? What does Paul say? The desire of the flesh. And then guess what happens? Then you start getting used to listening to that channel, and you realize, oh, this isn't quite the sound fidelity that I thought it was. The more I walk with Jesus and the more I heed the Spirit, I start to hear more and more of the desires of the flesh. So at first, I was able, because I'm following the Spirit of God, to stop cussing out my neighbor, right? And that was good. But the more I walk with the Spirit, then I start to hear like, oh, wait, but I'm doing that in my heart. And so I got to dial it in a little bit more. I feel anger welling up inside of me. I'm no longer getting in bar fights. But the anger's still there. So then I dial it in a little bit more. And it is that work of the Spirit that allows us to love God and others. We need more of God's Spirit to enable us or empower us to live the lives that God created us to live. And here's how it works. God uses the Scripture which are the words of God's Spirit. Listen, we, we talk about the Bible being inspired all the time, and we don't think through what that is. We have a written testimony of actual words that God spoke by His Spirit to His people. You want to know what the Spirit says? Look in the Scripture. We experience the work of the Spirit in His people, community. We experience the work of the Spirit when we feel conviction, God moving inside of our hearts. Let me give you another illustration. 
Think about walking in the Spirit like driving on I-75, right? You got a destination you are heading, a place that you are going. And sometimes, absolutely, we feel the Spirit saying, hey, we're going to change lanes here. It's an accident up ahead, right? That happens. And often when we talk about hearing from the Spirit, that's the kind of thing that we talk about the most often. But I don't think that's the work of the Spirit that we actually experience the most. The work that we experience the most is driving down the interstate. And we are tempted to get off the exit of anger, of lust, of pride, or some other vice. And it is the Spirit that brings conviction to our hearts, saying, don't get off here, this is not for you. At times, that's the Spirit speaking through the Scripture. You read something that morning or the day before, or you remember a passage from church the previous week, or a verse that you memorized when you were a kid. God's Spirit brings it to mind. Go, I'm not getting off this exit. Sometimes that's community. At our lowest points, we're ready to get off. We get a phone call from a friend or a word of encouragement in our missional communities. And sometimes that is a leading of our heart that words could never express. And then at times, we ignore that and we just get off. And we dive headlong into anger. We lie. We've deceived someone. We've given ourselves over to self-justification and pride again. We did what we said we would never do. And then the temptation is to stay there. And guess who shows up? Start dialing it into the Holy Spirit. We feel like we're not worthy. You ever had that feeling before? I royally messed up. What am I going to do? I'm just going to sit here in it. I'm going to experience guilt and shame. And here's what the Spirit does. God's Spirit shows up and says, you're forgiven. You're a son. You're a daughter. Get back on the interstate and head home. And how? The Scripture. The Spirit says, Romans 8, 1, over you. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Spirit uses community. A brother or sister saying, hey, this is not you. Here's what God's already said about you. You belong to him. Let's go. God uses sometimes just a gentle leading of our hearts. But this, this word, to get us back where we're supposed to be, to free us from condemnation, from the guilt and shame that we experience when we're tempted to be given over to despair, this is what Paul's talking about in verse 18. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. We just say, the law can no longer condemn you because you live not by the law, but by the Spirit. The law has no power to condemn you anymore. Jesus took all of that to the cross. It's not for you. Get back on the interstate. You don't have to stay here. And that is how we are not given over to despair. I love Martin Luther, he says this. The words, if ye be led by the Spirit, ye are not under the law, are replete with comfort. It happens at times that anger and hatred, impatience, carnal desire, fear, sorrow, and some other lust of the flesh so overwhelms a man that he cannot shake them off, though he try ever so hard. What should he do, Luther says? Should he despair? 
God forbid. Let him say to himself, my flesh seems to be on a war path against the spirit again. Go to it, flesh. Rage all you want, but you are not going to have your way. I follow the leading of the spirit. Now, that is beautifulness. I read this past week, and I just looked forward to new heaven and new earth, and I'm going to track down Martin Luther, and I'm going to hug him, and I'm going to weep, and I'm going to say, thank you, brother, for keeping me from despair. We talk about the Spirit. I want to remind you we are not divorcing this from the Scripture. We believe in this thing the reformers called solo scripture, which means scripture alone. What that phrase means is not that we don't read other books or we don't listen to preaching or we don't look for other wisdom or truth. It means that God's word is our final authority. And so when we feel or think about the Holy Spirit, we always go back to the scripture. The feeling inside of my heart or your heart is not the final authority. Instead, God's word is the final authority because, remember, in the scripture, we know with certainty that the Holy Spirit has already spoken. So, when we think that the Spirit is leading us, the place where we go to for confirmation and certainty and assurance is not our own hearts. We already said our own hearts pull us towards sinful desires. We go back to the scripture. So I want to be very clear. Very clear. If you're having problems with your neighbor and you think the Holy Spirit said, Hey, you should get revenge. Let's go pour gasoline on his yard. I want you to know, friend, God didn't tell you that. How do we know that? Because God told you to love your neighbor. In the scripture, done, over. If you're thinking, my marriage is struggling, I believe God is telling me to leave my wife for another woman who I think is more attractive. It's not true. I can say that with confidence because the Spirit's already spoken on that issue. Jesus has already spoken on that issue. We already know what he says. God told you to love your wife as Jesus loved the church. Done. God told me I don't have to belong to a church anymore. I can worship church out in nature. Not true. God didn't tell you that. How do we know that? Because the Spirit already spoke in Hebrews and said, do not forsake assembling together. And so whenever we think we're hearing from the Spirit, that's a good thing. And we take it back to the Scripture alone. Why? Because the Scripture is the Spirit speaking. So we walk in the Spirit. We tune our hearts to the Spirit. We do that by loving the Scripture taking hold of God's word, 
knowing what God has already spoken. Hey, college students, young adults, man, you want to pray about God's will for your life? Here's where you start, man. You start in the word. You start in the scripture. And we pray it. We ingest it. We know it. That's how we get to know God's spirit. I love Luther again. He says, when the flesh begins to cut up the only remedy, the only remedy, he says, is to take the sword of the spirit, the word of salvation, and to fight against the flesh. If you set the word out of sight, you are helpless against the flesh. I know, he says, this to be a fact. Don't you love that? He's like a hero of our faith. He's like, hey, I already set the word aside and tried to do it. It doesn't work. I have been assailed, he says, by many violent passions, but as soon as I took hold of some scripture passage, my temptations left me. Without the word, I could not have helped myself against the flesh. And then we're walking in the spirit. We're loving the scripture. We're also clinging to the gospel. We fight to despair with the gospel. We believe the Spirit when he reminds us that our identity is in Christ, that no matter what we're done, we're forgiven, that we belong to the family, not because of what we could produce or earn, but because of what Jesus did. And we cling to those truths. We pray them and repeat them, put them deep inside of our hearts. It's walking in the Spirit. That's how you tune the dial. And we walk in humility. We see in the passage, we cannot resist sin on our own. I can't love my neighbor on my own. I can't love God on my own. What I need is the leadership of the Spirit. And so I embrace humility, not pride. And I pray dependence. That's how we do it daily. God, I need you today. So last prayer of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus' prayer that he taught his disciples. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's the same thing. God, by your spirit, would you lead me and guide me today? And I love this, verse 25. If we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. In step and walk, translated differently because it's different verbs. Make sense? Good. In step here carries the idea of daily consistently. So to walk in the Spirit or to stay in step with the Spirit, we are daily tuning the dial. Daily Scripture. Daily reminding ourselves and preaching the gospel to ourselves. Daily in prayer, admitting our dependence on God, that it becomes a daily habit. And the more those habits start to infuse our lives, the more we walk in lockstep with the Spirit of God. So, this is where we end today. First, for maybe those of you here who this seems very foreign because you just don't know Christ yet. You haven't experienced the pull of the flesh being set against the pull of the Spirit because you don't know Jesus. You don't know what that kind of conflict is like. You have a constant desire set really around yourself. Today is the day where you can repent of that. Even if that 
is for doing good, even if that is for proving yourself to God, even if that is for proving yourself to other people, that's the very thing that separates us from God. And so, friend, today, if you don't know Christ, today's the day to set that aside and trust Jesus and Jesus alone to save you. Experience the new life of God's Spirit at work in your heart. And for those of us who are believers, this is our everyday life. Let me in, just encourage you, brothers and sisters, every day this conflict is happening inside of us, and every day we tune the dial because there is a pull to do what we do not want to do. And you want to please God, you want to walk with Him, you want to know Him, you want your friends to know Him, you want that. So we have to fight against those desires that pull us away from that. Walking with the Spirit, tuning that dial, loving the Scripture, clinging to the Gospel, walking in humility. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.